Good morning. How's everybody? Good. The six of you who have braved the uh, snowpocalypse 2021, thank you for being here. My name is Zach, one of the pastors, and uh, today we're going to be going over 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 9. So while you're turning there, I want to uh, recap something with you. 2020 was a difficult year. There were a lot of things going on. There was uh, COVID. There was what was worse than COVID, which was everyone's fearful response to COVID. There was race riots. There was a contentious election. Uh, there were all these kind of crazy things that were going on in 2020, but something that went underreported was that at the end of 2019, early 2020, there was a coyote here in Collin County that was attacking joggers, okay? I don't know if you know this or not, but multiple joggers were attacked by this crazy coyote everywhere from Frisco up through McKinney, and uh, for me, that was probably the worst part because I like to go for a jog, but right before I decided to go for a jog, I was looking on the news and I saw that this coyote had been attacking people. And so I wanted to go for a jog, but I also didn't want to get rabies, you know, because I have a bucket list and getting rabies is not on that bucket list, especially because you have to get shots in your stomach or something crazy. And so I didn't know what to do. I didn't have an Acme anvil to bring with me. I didn't have a roadrunner to distract him or anything. So I thought to myself, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go jogging with a knife. Okay? Now, not a, not a fixed blade knife. If you see a guy running and he just has a fixed blade knife, that is a serial killer. You see who he is running after, okay? But a folding knife. So I think this is a good idea. This will protect me from the rabid coyote. And I thought this was such a great idea. It's safe. I'm not going to have to fire rounds into my neighbor's houses or anything like that. I'm just going to go jogging with this knife. So I go jogging with this knife. And then every time I run by a fence and a dog barks, I think, that's the wolf. Because at this point, it'd become a wolf, okay? Not just a coyote. My wife, by the way, makes fun of me because I say wolf instead of wolf with an L. So I'm looking out for the wolf, and as I'm running, I think to myself, this seemed like a good idea to begin with, but I started to realize this was actually kind of stupid. Like, what is the plan? If I see a coyote, I'm not going to run from it. I'm just going to let it bite my arm and try to stab it and yell America or something like that. That was my plan. What started out is a genius idea. This is how I will protect myself. This seems brilliant. All that ended up with was me just jogging with a sweaty knife, okay? It was a terrible plan. It seemed wise at the moment, but at some point in the jog, my eyes were open and I realized, I'm stupid. I'm not as smart as I think. This is, this is wisdom of the world kind of thinking. Now, the reason I tell you that is because the text this morning is going to deal with something that seems smart to the world, but the Bible's actually going to say it's really dumb. And what the world thinks is dumb, the Bible's actually going to say is really smart, that the gospel is true wisdom in contrast to worldly wisdom. So let's pray, and then we will get into verse 6. Dear God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the snow. It's a reminder that you are the one who has ordained all things, and you've ordained that it would snow today, that we might uh, play out there with our kids, and we might uh, make uh, snowmen, or what we get in Texas, kind of these muddy icemen, but we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We ask that you'd bless this time as we study your word. It's in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's look at verse six together. It says this, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Let's look at that first phrase there. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. When he says the mature, he's not trying to divide Christians into two different levels. There's not two tiers of Christianity. You will hear a lot of churches that have a tendency to do that. They'll say, on the one hand, there are carnal Christians or nominal Christians or fleshly Christians. But on the other hand, there are those that are truly spiritual Christians. Or you get this a lot with the charismatic movement. There are those who've spoken in tongues. Those are the, the varsity Christians. Those ones who, they've lettered in Christianity. 
They're the A team, whereas those who have not spoken in tongues is junior varsity. They are the B team. And what they start doing is creating these two distinctions, these two tiers within Christianity. That is unbiblical. In Christ, we are one. That there's one faith, one hope, one baptism. We were all made to drink of one spirit, etc. So you can be more sanctified than somebody else, but there's not two tiers of Christianity. And so when he calls them the mature, he's not trying to say that there are two different tiers or levels of Christianity. What he's trying to simply do by using that term is he's contrasting it with non-believers. The term there, mature, simply means Christians. That's what he's meaning. It's a synonym for Christians. To the world, we look stupid. We look immature. We have a faith that involves a talking snake and a big boat, and we worship a crucified homeless guy. That looks foolish to the world. But when you see it from God's perspective, it's the other way around. It's the elites of the world that God thinks are immature, that are childish in their thinking, that are not intelligent, and rather it is those who know Christ, those are the ones who are actually mature. So that word mature there simply means Christians, as opposed to those who partake in worldly thinking, okay? As those who partake in worldly thinking. Also notice this, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Paul is not against wisdom, okay? Paul would be against any type of string of anti-intellectualism that floods the church, When Paul critiques wisdom, he's equivocating. What is an equivocation? An equivocation is where you use the same word, but you mean different things by that word. When Paul critiques wisdom, he doesn't mean wisdom as such. He doesn't mean wisdom per se. He means worldly wisdom, so-called wisdom, what the lost world thinks is wise. What he imparts or encourages wisdom, what he means is true wisdom, biblical wisdom, godly thinking, biblical thinking, the gospel. So he's not against wisdom. You have to keep that in mind. There are a lot of pastors when they preach this first part of 1 Corinthians, they basically say something like this, stop all your book learning, stop all your argumentation, stop all your deep deep thinking, just do squishy spiritual stuff, right? Just do that. That's all God wants. That's not what Paul is doing. Paul does impart a type of wisdom. Okay? And the wisdom is biblical wisdom. Let me give you a great quote by C.S. Lewis. It says this, for my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. Let me pause there. Doctrinal books are books that teach God. They teach theology. They teach Bible. Devotional books are those kind of squishy, pastoral, gummy bear style books that always make the top 10 of the Christian reading list. Okay? If you want to know what books you shouldn't read, just see what is the top 10 in Christianity and don't read those. Okay? Those are devotional books. What, what C.S. Lewis is saying is you actually grow more through doctrine than through that just squishy, experiential, anecdotal kind of evidence. For my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. Okay? We are not against wisdom. We are pr- read the book of Proverbs. Not only does it tell you like a billion times to seek wisdom, it tells you to seek knowledge. Seek knowledge, seek wisdom, learn, fill your mind with facts. The Bible is huge on that. So Paul does impart a type of wisdom. It's just not the wisdom of the world, which we see in the next phrase. It says this, although it is not a wisdom of this age. Okay, let me explain what that means. The wisdom of our world says exalt self. That's what the wisdom of the world is, exalt self. 
It's your body, it's your choice, it's your life, it's your money, it's your job. Do everything that you want, make it all about you. That's what it, same thing back in Corinth when people would exalt themselves by attaching themselves to a great speaker or they would attach themselves to some sort of philosopher. Same kind of thing goes on today. When you are not a Christian, it's not just that you have some selfishness in your life, your entire life is selfishness. Everything you do, you do for you. Even when you help somebody that you tweet about, you do for you. Even if you help somebody that you don't tweet about, you're doing it so that you can view yourself as a kind person who helps others. We are wretchedly infected with selfishness. We are wretchedly infected with sin. That is the wisdom of the world. And what Paul is having to do to the church at Corinth and to us today is to push back against that. That if you want to save your life, you must lose it. If you want to be great, you must be a servant. Sell all that you have and follow him, okay? It is, it is countercultural. Let me, let me tell you what I think is going on in our culture. You guys know the story by Hans Christian Andersen, The Emperor's New Clothes? Yeah, y'all know the story as a kid? In the story, there's this king, there's this emperor, and these swindlers come into town, and they tell the king that they are gonna design the most incredible clothes he's ever seen. The, the, the prettiest colors, it's so light, they say it's like a cobweb that you can't even feel it when it's on, hint, hint. And so uh, they're making these beautiful clothes, but th- there's one caveat. Only people who are smart can see the clothes. If you're some contemptible person, you're not talented, you're not smart, you can't see the clothes. The most foolish people can't see them. Only the enlightened, only the most progressive of these people can see the clothes. And so as they're making the clothes, they're acting like they're cutting fabric and they're doing all of that. And the king is afraid that if he looks in there, the emperor, and doesn't see the clothes, he'll know that he's foolish. So he sends in an advisor. And the advisor goes in to check on their work and he can't see the clothes because they don't exist. And so he instead, though, doesn't want to be thought to be foolish, so he goes back to the emperor and says, oh, it's coming along marvelously. The clothes are beautiful, and there's a bunch of colors and a bunch of patterns, and the king gets excited. So he sends in a second advisor to go check on the clothes, and the advisor goes in, and and he also can't see them, but he doesn't want to admit it, right? You don't want to be seen as not woke. You don't want to be seen as not enlightened. You don't want other people to uh, think that you think differently than they do. So he tells the emperor the same thing. I can see the clothes, they're beautiful, you're gonna love them, they're incredible. When they finally finish the clothes, they present them to the emperor, and he can't see them either. The clothes don't actually exist, no one's been able to see them, but everyone has to act like they can see them, including the emperor. And so he acts like he can see the clothes when he can't. And he goes on parade wearing a suit, but only his birthday suit, and everyone in the crowd t- says that the clothes are beautiful and that they can see them and that it's, it's brilliant. It's a, it's a story for our age that the clothes don't exist and no one can see them, but to be thought enlightened, to go along with the crowd, to get enough retweets and to get enough regrams and all these kind of things, everyone is saying, we can see the clothes too. Who is it that actually calls out that the emperor doesn't have any clothes on? It's a child who doesn't care what others think about him, who doesn't care about his presence on social media, who doesn't care whatever's hot in the news. He just says what's obvious. He just says what's true. That is exactly what's going on in our culture. It is the wisdom of the world where we know certain things are stupid and yet everyone says that they're smart. Let me give you just a few examples. Our culture says that it is smart to take a man who identifies as a woman and put him in a bathroom with little girls. Our culture says, that's a good idea. That's smart. Doctors say this. Uh, University professors say this. It's wisdom of the world. Everyone else knows that is the most stupid thing I have ever heard in my entire life. And yet the world says, it's brilliant. We can see the clothes. Look how beautiful the clothes are. Our world, our culture, the worldly wisdom says to defund the police, okay? 
That, that the problem is not that mankind is sinful and broken. The problem is the police. So what we need to do is we need to defund the police. And then guess what happens? Murder in Austin went up 54%. Of course it did. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. I could go to a child eating crayons and say, do you think it's a good idea to get rid of the police? And he'd say, well, then who would stop the bad guys? That's right. That's really smart of you to say, child. But our culture, with wisdom of the world, the wisdom of our age says, that's a good idea. Just let evil ran, just run rampant, okay? Normalizing pornography is something that our culture does. You can follow porn stars on social media. It's normal, it's common, and then we wonder why the levels of sexual assault and adultery and molestation and all these kind of things are going through the roof. Again, it's because when you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. This is all wisdom of the world. The culture would say, yes, this is good, this is smart, this is enlightened. And if you just step back for a second, you say, the emperor is naked. Not disciplining your kids is wisdom of the world. After all, we all know that kids come out of the womb with the same intelligence and same social savvy as a 50-year-old, right? And we don't have to instill that into them. We can just let them do what they want. Wisdom of the world says this phrase, that you'll hear it. I only heard this beginning in 2020, that only some races can be racist. As if there are certain groups that just cannot commit a certain type of sin. Like that you stand in front of God on judgment day and he's like, did you not love somebody else who has made my image? And that person says, well, God, you don't understand. I can't be racist. And God is like, okay, well, I guess you tricked me. You said it out loud, so I guess that made it true. But this isn't just in social and political spheres. We see wisdom of the world in a bunch of things. The idea that you should sleep with your girlfriend before you're married is wisdom of the world, right? You have to try before you buy. You wouldn't buy a car without test driving it. And so what you need to do is you need to live with your girlfriend before you're married. That seems wise to the world. But in God's wisdom, he says, no, that's not my goal. My goal is not for you to get married out of selfishness. My goal is not for you to get married to somebody who will fulfill all the things you want them to fulfill. Rather, my goal for you as a Christian is to marry somebody that you might disagree on the area of sexuality with them so that you have to be sanctified, so that you have to put sin to death, so that you have to grow in holiness and God will use your spouse on either side of that marriage to do that. To do that. that's, that's the difference between wisdom of the world and God's wisdom. What seems smart to lost minds is super stupid to God and vice versa, and vice versa. Look at the next phrase. Or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Who are the rulers of this age? Most likely, that is a reference to human rulers, okay? We know that because in verse eight, it's gonna say those who crucified Jesus. So he's probably talking about those like Pilate and like Herod and these kind of guys. But you need to understand in Jewish theology, and you see this language a bunch in the New Testament, the idea of powers or authorities or principalities is a Jewish way of speaking about demons. So I think he's, uh, he's specifically talking about the rulers of this age, politicians that don't know Christ, which by the way is most of them, They are the rulers of this age, but you need to understand that standing behind everything that's going on is a bigger cosmic battle. People aren't just making decisions willy-nilly. There's a bigger cosmic battle going on behind all this stuff. To, To say it more strongly, Satan loves Planned Parenthood. Satan loves Marxism. Satan loves the destruction of the nuclear family. These aren't just political events and social events that are happening. There is standing behind the rulers of this world who are human, rulers of this world who are demonic. Now look at the last phrase there. Here's the good news. Who are doomed to pass away. That they will eventually be brought to nothing. That judgment day is the great equalizer. Here's an encouraging thing. If you feel like everything is crazy and everyone has lost their mind, it will not always be that way. There is a day coming where there will be no more of the crazy. 
things will be great. The wolf will lie down with the lamb and there will be peace and there will be truth and there will be light and there will be gospel. That at the end of the day, judgment is the great equalizer. There's a famous uh, photo of some graffiti that was etched onto a wall or rather sprayed painted onto a wall of a university. And it's Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, his famous phrase, God is dead, okay? So it says on that wall, God is dead, Nietzsche. And then under it, a Christian had written, Nietzsche is dead, God, okay? That eventually the wisdom of the ages eventually comes to naught. That at the end of the day, Christians win. At the end of the day, Christ has already won. And that all the worldly thinking that's promoted by the rulers of this world, that's wisdom of the age, is doomed to pass away. Verse seven, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Okay, when this text says that it is a secret and a hidden wisdom, this doesn't mean like Gnosticism, that we have these secret rituals or something that we only tell you once you're initiated. It's not like you become a member here at Parkway and in your first member meeting, we're like, now you get to sacrifice a goat because that is secret and that is hidden. That's not what it means. It also doesn't mean, and it was similar to what Jeff was mentioning last week with the term that's used often in the Bible, mysterion, mystery. It doesn't mean that you get your magnifying glass and go sleuthing or something like that. When the Bible says that the gospel is this secret and this hidden mystery of God, here's what it means by those phrases. It means something that God has already planned to bless humanity that doesn't remain a secret forever, but rather in the person of Christ, God reveals his plan to save humans, to bless us, to do good to us, and that mystery is revealed. With God, it's not just a hidden mystery that stays hidden, but in Christ, it's now been revealed. We now see what God was working out over all that time in the Old Testament to bring us to salvation. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says this, the singular term mystery ordinarily refers to something formerly hidden in God from all human eyes, but now revealed in history through Christ and made understandable to his people through the Spirit. This, what Paul is trying to do to the, the Corinthians who love worldly wisdom, who love worldly philosophy, who want to just come up with all these ways they're enlightened, he's trying to show them that that is not how God works. God works through revealing it to them, okay? God works through that revelation, so let, let, let's do it this way. Um, if I were to divide history into three categories intellectually, I would do it this way. Before the Enlightenment, you have the pre-modern era, okay? In the pre-modern era, truth was thought to come through revelation. For mankind to know the most important things for us to know, God must reveal it to us. Then you get the modern era in the Enlightenment in the 1600s and 1700s, and now truth comes not through revelation, but through reason. You have the flourishing of philosophy, you have the flourishing of human science, and so there's still truth, but it's not found through revelation, God revealing it, it's found through human reason. And then in today, we live in the postmodern era, which is where not just that there's no truth, but truth is actually oppressive. Anybody who claims to have truth is simply trying to create an in-group and an out-group. If you have the truth, you're in the in-group, and you're creating an out-group that you're by default are oppressing. That's how truth works now in our culture, okay? What Paul is trying to say is that the pre-modern view is right. That shouldn't surprise us. Paul wrote this before the Enlightenment, like 1,600 years before the Enlightenment, okay? And so that is what he's trying to do. Let's do a little experiment. Let's name some truths that are not in the Bible. Shout one out. There's only, you know, 20 of us in here or whatever. Shout Shout out a truth that's not in the Bible. One plus one is two. The sky is blue. What else? There's so many more. I mean, we could go on for hours and hours. Give me another one. The sun is yellow. I heard another one. Somewhere over here. 
Yes, yes, the law of gravity, okay? So there are these truths that are outside the Bible. Excellent. Now let's name some truths about God that we don't know from the Bible. Like if we didn't have a Bible, what can humans just reason to about God? Let's name some truths about God, pretending we don't have a Bible at all. What could you come up with? There's a few. That he's, yes, you could know some of his attributes. He's strong by what's been created. What else? I don't know that you could know God is omnipresent without the Bible. I think you could say there could be a God way off on some planet somewhere that created everything. What else? Yes, he cre- he's creator. Here's about the only two things you can know. This comes from Romans 1. Without the Bible, if you just wanted to reason to God, here's what you can know. He exists because obviously something can't come from nothing. The universe can't be eternal or we'd never get to today. We'd have to traverse infinite days. And so obviously he's a creator and somehow we have rebelled against him. That there is within the heart of man, if they assault a child, there's that conscience that pricks them. But other than that, that's about all you can know about God. You can know that he's the creator and he's strong and you can know that we've sinned against him and that's it. Now, here's why I say this. The most important things for you to know, God must reveal to you. You can look at a mountain and say, whatever made that must be strong, but you don't look at a mountain and say, whatever made that must be a trinity and sent the second person of the trinity to take on humanity, live the life that I should have lived, fulfilling the Mosaic law, dying on a cross for the punishment of my sin and was one day raised and therefore I can just trust in him by faith alone to be saved. You don't get that from looking at the mountain. Okay, that must be revealed to you. The most important things about God are not arrived at through human reason or through our speculation. They must be revealed to us by God. Now look at God's purpose in this, which I love. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages. Look at that last phrase, for our glory. The reason God did this is because he is good and because he loves humans. God is against sinful humanity. But overall, he's on the side of humanity. He wants humanity to be redeemed. He loves us despite the fact that he should not because we are so rebellious. You see that the purpose that God had in in concealing this mystery and then showing it in Christ is because his overwhelming love for us. Let me give you an example. This last summer, my wife and I, we decided that we would take our kids on a vacation and we were gonna go to the beach, okay? So we were gonna go to the beach in Florida. I love Texas, but Texas beaches are not real beaches. I didn't want my kids' first experience at the beach to be to step on a syringe and get covered in oil water. And so instead, we decided we're gonna go to Florida. And so I tell the kids, guys, we're gonna go to the beach and it's gonna be so exciting. But they have no conception of this. They're little kids. So I say we're going to the beach and they don't really know what that is. So we get in the car to drive to Florida And I don't know if you've ever traveled with little kids or not, but they constantly want to know whether we are or are not there, okay? Which should be answered by the fact that we're in the car. And so we're going, and they don't know what the beach is like. So we'll drive over a bridge, and they'll see a lake, and they'll say, look, Daddy, the beach. And I say, that's not the beach. That's a lake. Those are lake people, son. We don't talk to lake people. We're beach people. We're trying to get to the beach. And so we stop in Mississippi for the night because we're making it a two-day trip. And he's like, is this it? Is this the beach? And I was like, do you see any water? Do you see any sand? No, this is not the beach. So we get back in the car the next day. We drive to Florida, passing over other lakes. Is that the beach? No, I have to tell you a hundred times that is lake, that is gross, fresh water. There's probably dead bodies in it. We're going to the beach. The beach is what we love. So then we get closer to the beach and we drive over a big you know, bridge near salt water at least. Daddy, is this the beach? No, but we're getting closer, but we're getting closer. So we get to where we're supposed to be and of course they don't have the key to where we can get into where we're staying. And so my wife and I just said, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna just take all of our luggage and we're just gonna walk a mile pushing kids and luggage down to the beach. 
And so it's this long, arduous journey. I think it's the only vacation I've ever been on where I lost weight. And so we go on this, we're going and we're pushing all these things. And then finally we walk down the pier and my son sees the ocean for the first time in his life and goes, whoa, look at that. And I think, this is the beach. Now we've arrived. And we play in the waves and push him on the little boogie board and play with my daughter in the sand and we catch a sand crab. And it was magical. It was excellent. And I told my kids the reason daddy took you to the beach is because daddy keeps his promises. I told you that I would take you to the beach because I love you and it's fun and daddy keeps his promises. That's kind of what Paul is saying. In the Old Testament, there's this promise from God, you're going to the beach, but you don't see it that clearly. You you confuse it with lakes. You think maybe Moses is the deliverer. Well, no, he murders that guy and hits that rock when he's supposed to talk to it. Or maybe the guy is uh, David. No, you know, he murders a guy and sleeps with his wife. Uh, maybe the guy, and you start seeing these sons thinking, when is the Messiah coming? When is the one who's of the seed of the woman gonna crush the serpent's head? And you see all these lakes. And after this long, arduous journey, Christ appears on the scene and you see the beach that God's plan has been to bless, to save, to redeem, to forgive. And God leans down and whispers, the reason I sent Christ is because daddy keeps his promises. That is what Paul is doing here by talking about this hidden wisdom of God, this mystery of God, this promise and fulfillment. Verse eight, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This is uh, kind of an offhanded comment. I wanna mention two things about this theologically though. First of all, notice that there is an element of sin that is due to ignorance, okay? First of all, sin is something that you are. You are by nature a sinner because you are of the DNA of Adam, Okay, we are, even before we commit individual sins, we are under the wrath of God because we are born depraved. We are not born friends of God. We are born evil. We are born broken. We are born under God's wrath. So sin, in one sense, is something that we are. It's also something that we do. God says not to lust, and we do. God says not to be proud, and we are proud. God says to let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth, and yet there it is, okay? It happens, especially in traffic, right? And so God, the sins are also these actions that we do, but there's another element of sin, which is sin based on ignorance, which doesn't excuse you. It's the same way like in the, if the same way in secular law. If I get pulled over for driving drunk 100 miles an hour in a school zone, I can't say, excuse the ossifer, I didn't know that you shouldn't drive drunk, because even if that's true, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, because ignorance is no excuse of the law. It's the same way with God that we sin against God, not just willingly and intentionally, but accidentally all the time. Notice the element of the rulers of this world not properly knowing who Christ is and therefore crucifying him. But you see something else in verse eight. So we're gonna do a little theology. You see God using this ignorance and these evil decisions for his glory. God will get glory from everything. God even uses people's evil decisions for his glory. So let's do a little theology here out of verse eight, okay? The main difference, in my view, between the Calvinist, someone who is reformed in their theology, and the Arminian, someone who is not Calvinistic, who is not reformed in their theology, is not that the Calvinist emphasizes the sovereignty of God and the Arminian emphasizes human responsibility. That's a terrible way to classify those. The Arminian believes that God is sovereign and believes that humans have responsibility. The Calvinist believes God is sovereign and that humans have responsibility. The Bible affirms both, so both groups affirm both. What is it that makes them different? Here's what makes them different. The Arminian says that those two facts are incompatible. 
that they are not compatible with one another. If God has ordained you to choose Jesus, then you would just have to be a robot. It can't really be your decision. And if you've decided through human responsibility to do something, God could not have ordained it. So for the Arminian, the non-Calvinist, the big issue is those two things cannot be true at the same time. They are incompatible. If God has ordained something, it's also not voluntary. If it's voluntary, God could not have ordained it like that. The Calvinist, on the other hand, though, is what is called, holds to what is called compatibilism. We believe that those two things are compatible, that they can go together. Let me give you some examples. Who ordained that Judas would betray Christ? Who? God did. It's in the Bible, it's in the Psalms, that he who dips his hand into the dish with me will lift up his heel against me. Judas is already prophesied to betray Christ. He can't not do it. God has already ordained it. Yet, does that go against Judas's will? Is Judas like, why do, I, why do I want to betray Christ for this money? I just want to serve him. No, it also goes along with his will. It goes along with his responsibility. He wants to betray Christ because he loves silver. If you want to push it even further, in fact, the devil also wants Judas to betray Christ. So God wants Judas to betray Christ. Judas wants to betray Christ. The devil wants Judas to betray Christ. And yet they all do it with different motivations. God to save mankind. Judas because he's selfish. The devil because he hates his creator, Christ. Okay? But notice how those things can go together, that God is ordaining it, but it doesn't go against their will. Evil people love doing evil things. To give you another example, the Bible prophesies that Jesus is going to be crucified. So imagine you're the soldier doing the crucifying. Does that go against your will? Is it like a soldier whipping Jesus and he's like, why am I doing this? I just just want to worship. And he just keeps whipping him. No, the soldier also wants to whip him. Because when you are evil, you want to. By your very nature, you want to do what is evil. So you know that God can ordain something, God can be sovereign over something, and yet humans still be responsible because those things are compatible. They go together, okay? They go together. Now, don't get me wrong. When it comes to God's decisions and our decisions, God always stands first, logically and temporally. He exists before we do, and he doesn't learn new information, so all of his decisions exist before any of ours. But let me give you maybe a little analogy that might be helpful. In Shakespeare's work, Hamlet, Hamlet kills a guy named King Claudius. So here's my question to you. Who kills King Claudius? Is it Hamlet, or is it Shakespeare? Or is it, in a sense, both? Shakespeare, ultimately, because Shakespeare is the one, he's the final cause, he's the one writing the story. Hamlet doesn't exist without Shakespeare, but also truly Hamlet, because Hamlet wants to kill King Claudius because he hates him. You see here in verse 8 this ignorance and these decisions of these pagan rulers, and yet God is sovereign the whole time. Jesus isn't crucified as an accident. Jesus is crucified because God has ordained that for our salvation. Verse 9, but... As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 9 is probably a culmination of Isaiah 64, 4 and some other biblical passages. There's not one passage in the Bible that says this exactly. What Paul is doing is he's summarizing, okay? Which I think is better. Every time I've had to write a paper, I always have to footnote and put all this detail for all these ideas because I got them from somewhere. Guess what? All my ideas I got from somewhere. So for some reason, if I learned it three months ago, I don't have to cite it, but if I read it right now, I do. That's not how they do it in the Bible, because again, the Bible is smarter than we are. And so what they do, Paul simply says, it's like the Bible says, and then he throws a bunch of ideas together because he's not trying to give a perfect quote. He's not trying to give, he's trying to give us a paraphrase of God's heart in this. 
that God has this plan for those that love him, but it's not something that humans in worldly wisdom reason to. It's not something that our eyes see or our ears hear. I'll give you another example. You guys seen the movie The Matrix? I love the movie The Matrix. Not the second and third one. You can watch those because there's some sick karate, but the storyline's not as good. The Matrix, the first one, is genius. Because here's the story, spoiler alert, it's been 20 years, so I apologize if this ruins this for you. This is the idea, is that everything humans think they're experiencing, they're not really experiencing. They're just having electrodes in their mind. In fact, you understand this a little bit. You've had dreams where you thought it was real life. There are people that aren't really there. There are places that aren't really there, and it feels and seems real to you. What if all of life was like that? So you see in the matrix, what everybody thinks is their normal life is actually just basically a big dream. This alien force, this evil demonic force has enslaved humanity. Now you start to see some gospel here. Has enslaved humanity. And what we think is the real world, what we think is the wisdom of the world is really just us being in this goo and having this electrode in the back of our brain. And that's what we think. We think this is real life. And by the way, it's very hard to prove that it's not true. Okay, don't, be, don't, 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 don't get me wrong. We're not in the matrix. But in philosophy, there's a whole experiment called a brain in the vat, which goes, if there is a uh, scientist and you're just a brain and he stimulates the right stuff, could he not make you experience everything else you experience and yet you don't even have a body, okay? So this demonic force has enslaved humanity and what we think is the wisdom of the world. We're climbing the corporate ladder and we're trying to make money is just a way to pacify us so we don't really see what's going on behind the scenes. So we don't really see the spiritual battle that's going on. But there are these people that offer the gospel, There's this ship called the Nebuchadnezzar whose captain's name is Morpheus, whose name means change. His assistant is Trinity. The place they go for protection is Zion. Are you following all this? And you know what Morpheus does is he offers conversion. You can take the blue pill, reject Jesus. You can take the red pill and you can have your eyes opened. You can be awakened to real life. And so you have this prophetic savior figure named Neo, which means new, His last name is Anderson, which means son of man. And what he does is he goes around and he destroys that evil demonic system. You see, while you're still plugged into the system, you can't see any of this. You see things the way the world does. At any point, you could become an Agent Smith. But what Neo does is he unplugs people. He opens their eyes to see what is real wisdom, what is really real, what truth is. And it's something that even to him has to be revealed to him. Morpheus has to tell him about that. He doesn't just come up with it on his own. That is how God's salvation works. You don't just come to it through what every eye has seen and ear has heard, but rather it's something that God must disclose to those who love him. Mark 4, 10 through 12, this is a stressful passage. And when he was alone, that's Jesus, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you, it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that, quote, they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, let me tell you why this is a stressful passage. I've heard pastors get up and say, the reason Jesus preaches in parables is so that people understand what he's saying. He's speaking to an agrarian society. So he's using stories of seed and animals and vineyards so it would make sense to them. When the disciples asked Jesus, why does he tell parables? He says the exact opposite. He says, I tell parables so people won't get it, so that they won't see it, so that they hear it, but they don't really understand, so that they see it, but they don't really perceive. Wait a second, Jesus. If they were able to see it, they would repent. He's like, I know, I don't want them to repent. I want them to continue in their sin, crucify me because I have come to save the elect. There is a strong 
theme of election and uh, Reformation thought within those kind of passages. That God's salvation is not reasoned to. When Peter confesses who Jesus is, when Jesus is like, who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, some say some guy, some say another guy. Who do you, Peter, say that I am? And he says that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He doesn't say, good job, Peter. You read a bunch of books and you're very smart. He said, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father who's in heaven. It's something that must be revealed. It must be given to mankind. It's not just something that we reason to. Now look at this last little phrase here. It's so good. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared, look at this, for those who love him. That this is all because God gets glory, yes, in judging people, but he also gets glory as he shows us mercy. That this plan of salvation in Christ is because he loves us, because he cares for us, because he wants to show us his overwhelming care for humanity. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Matthew 25.34, Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Or Revelation 21, one through four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This passage is a weird passage because he's basically just making a little sub point before he talks about something further we'll see next week. But I don't want you to miss in this passage God's plan and his overwhelming love to redeem humanity to care for us. Jesus going to the cross was because he loves us. Him hiding this plan and revealing it to those that the world despises is because he loves us. God gets glory. We get his love. It's a win-win. It's a win-win. I want to end with this, since this is really just a passage about worldly wisdom versus biblical wisdom, talking a little bit about Valentine's Day, all right? It's Valentine's Day. It's snowy. You can go snuggle with your significant other by the fire, or maybe don't because we already have way too many kids here at Parkway. And it's, it's Valentine's Day. It's a special day. Why do we celebrate Valentine's Day? Nobody knows for sure, but there's a conflation of two different historical events that cause us today celebrate Valentine's Day, okay? The first is that during the reign of Emperor Claudius II, he forbid marriages of young men because he wanted them for his army. So he had a draft, and so what he did is he would draft single guys, and so they would say, well, I don't want to go into the army, so I'll go get married. So what he did is he just forbid marriage for a season so that he could draft all these conscripts for his army. And there was a church leader. His name is Valentinus. And you know what he did? He performed secret marriages so these guys could still marry their beloved. And when he was arrested for it and put in prison, he received all this fan mail from these couples who had gotten together praising and extolling the glories of their marital love, okay? Now that story gets conflated with a different Valentinus, who's another church leader who was arrested and supposedly fell in love with the jailer's daughter and used to send her letters signed, from your Valentine. In 469, the Roman Catholic Church made Valentine an official feast day, and today that's why we give out flowers and hearts and all these kind of things. Now, here's why I say this to end with. In worldly wisdom, it looks like a good idea 
forbid this marriage, swell the army, do whatever I need to do to be successful. But biblical wisdom will often be counterintuitive. Biblical wisdom says no, marriage is good regardless. Biblical wisdom says don't sleep with your girlfriend before you're married. Biblical wisdom says when someone asks you to go one mile with them, go two miles. It's very impractical. The wisdom of God is very unlike the wisdom of the world. It is very impractical. And there are times where when you're holding to the wisdom of God, you will feel like you're crazy because all the world around you will be saying something completely different. Maybe you felt like that over the last few years where the whole world is saying something different. You think to yourself, am I crazy? Why do I feel like it's only me and a few others who have not bowed the knee to Baal, but everyone else has? This passage is meant to encourage you in that. The, wis- the, the world hates Christ Its wisdom is stupid, and so the majority is always gonna follow the stupid. Be careful when you find yourself in the majority. That should make you very, very nervous, okay? But the wisdom of God is a wisdom that involves a crucified Messiah. It involves humility, self-denial, repentance. You don't get to be great in Christianity. You get to have a great Savior. Let's pray, and then we will uh, worship in communion. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit and confess that you are great. We ask for you to give us wisdom. The Bible says that if we lack wisdom, we should pray for it. And to some extent, we all lack that. Would you help us see clearly? Would you help us see what Scripture says? Let us not be enticed by the wisdom of the world. We thank you for today. We thank you for uh, just protecting us, even thus far. Anybody hearing this prayer has not died of COVID or died in a car crash today. And we thank you that you're graceful and gracious to us. We love you and thank you for your mercy. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.